This is the Bitcoin and Markets Podcast. My name is Ansel Lindner, and I'm keeping you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. Hello, Bitcoiners. Back with another episode. Today, we're going to go over a tweet by Bob McElrath. <laughs> this is not your normal show. <laughs> um, you know, normal podcasts will be interviews. They'll talk very uh, narrowly about the topics Um uh, but I don't want to do that. I'm trying to keep you ahead of the curve. And so we're going to dive into some deeper topics, deeper understanding of this technology. Uh, at least that's what I try to do on a day-to-day basis. And I'm trying to take you guys along with me, like I say. Anyway, so here we go. Is Bob McElrath. Great stuff on Twitter. He's really good follow. So if you guys uh, want to check out this tweet, I'll put the link in the show notes to this episode. Okay, he quotes a tweet that was a response to another one of his tweets. So I'm going to try to go through this. Um, so this is subtweet number one. Bob says, We don't need Ethereum-style sharding. It requires too much centralized coordination in the beacon chain and requires inserting issuer centralization into a decentralized system. Instead, we will see more issuer-launched one asset per chain traded with cross-chain atomic swaps. So he's saying one coin per chain. This sharding with a beacon chain, it adds complexity, multiple coins on multiple shards going into a beacon chain. It's just um, a bunch of cluster and it's obviously insecure. So that's kind of what he's saying here. And then this uh, Dexter Valkyrie responded. I agree with this from the angle that it feeds the human nature tendency towards tribalism my asset, my chain, and diplomatic rules of engagement towards external entities, cross-chain atomic swaps. So he's saying that um, the tribalism will add convergence pressure to a single chain or a single asset on a single chain. And it also leads more uh, conceptually easy to understand this rules of engagement between chains. So it's just much easier to think about conceptually, (laughs) which I'm not doing well, talking about this, but anyway, then, um, so Bob McElrath, then he quotes that response, which was a good response. And he says, other assets on the same chain as yours are an externality you'd probably rather not have. And you should engineer away when the next crypto kitties breaks your gas estimator and your shareholders wallets, you'll ask why you allowed that externality in the first place. Not to mention the extremely complex game theory around mining, arbitrage, competition for block space, etc. that the flash loan event illuminated. If you're launching an asset, you want to control that game theory. That's freaking deep, people. That is very well said. Uh, it's. I tried to sum it up, so I responded to him. I said, non-native assets and non-native incentives are externalities. Now, what do I mean by non-native asset? Well, that's any other coin that's not part of the block reward, right? Uh, so it'd be ERC-20 for Ethereum. It'd be like color coins for Bitcoin. Uh, anything that is on-chain, but not the reward token. And remember, all of these systems must have a native asset that stitches together the incentives. If there were, if there was no native asset on a, on a chain, there would be no reason for people to advance to the next state, right? Or the next block. So the most important thing for 
a network or a platform or whatever you want to call these things, blockchains or distributed systems, the most important thing for these is this native asset. That is the underpinning of the incentive structure. And you don't want anything to interfere with that. If you don't have a concrete and knowable and consistent incentive structure, the behavior that that incentive structure brings about will not be consistent or knowable or predictable. So uh, value then will have a hard time accruing to that asset long term because the incentive structure is not consistent. Now for non-native assets, they have their own incentive structures and people call this tokenomics. I guess tokenomics could be also the main token, uh, the native asset, but uh, mainly I think of it in my head as tokenomics being these non-native assets. So uh, almost like a study of externalities in a way. Non-native assets. Now, all of these other tokens, they also have incentive structures that are built into their protocols or else there would be no reason or no way to enforce certain behavior or incentivize certain behavior and disincentivize other behavior. So when you start adding all of these together on the same chain, you start getting competing incentives and it becomes insecure. People can design their own protocol that plugs in or rides on top of Ethereum or Bitcoin. Um, but once these interact with the base layer incentives or other incentives, uh, it becomes uh, hard, uh, becomes harder to conceptualize and, and work through all of the problems within that. So how do I put that? How do I put that uh, more succinctly? Um, I think of it like this. There's an idea that goes, don't roll your own crypto. And the reason for that is because it's easy to design uh, a hashing algorithm that you yourself cannot break. You yourself can't break it. And then you jump to the conclusion that it's secure, but it's very difficult or impossible to <laughs> create something that nobody can break. So right next to the saying, don't roll your own crypto should also be a saying, don't add your incentives to the main chain <laughs> because yeah, you can run tests, you can build your protocol, you can think that it's very secure, but most likely your protocol is not secure. When you add it to many other different protocols in some sort of interconnected web of incentives, there's going to be a major bug in there. And if you're all iterating, there's no way to keep everything in sync, to keep all of the incentives aligned, which they almost guaranteed are not aligned in the first place. But that's this is exactly the same idea. It's non-adversarial thinking. Don't roll your own crypto. Don't add your incentives to the base layer. Your own creativity is not good enough to find out how it's going to break, but it's very certain that it is broken, That, but you just can't think of how to break it. See, that's the adversarial mindset. That's when we talk about uh, Ethereum folks not being adversarially minded. That's what we're talking about is I don't know how it's, how it's breakable, but I know that it's most likely breakable. So Bitcoin maximalists get a lot of flack because 
we automatically dismiss a lot of these things. One way the Ethereum folks might get around this or try to get around this is just to say, yeah, we know it's broken, but we will iterate. We will continue to make it better. They'll say that is what, you know, human beings do as they continue to build better things. Well, then why hold Ethereum is the question. Because the point, the competition is to the native assets as a money, monetary properties. And if you're constantly iterating and constantly iterating because there's bugs, um, there's going to be a point where the people don't want to hold that token because the uh, uncertainty of the future is so high. Well, eventually the uncertainty will disappear that it's certain that it has a bug because you continue to iterate and you don't ever want steady state like a perfectly secure state. See, that's what Bitcoin is going for. Bitcoin is going for the most rock solid and robust decentralized consensus that will not break. Everything else can be added on top through a layer two and not mess with consensus rules, not mess with the underlying incentives of the monetary property, the native asset. By adding these things, you are creating an insecure system that when you iterate, uh, people will lose confidence in that asset. And not only lose confidence, but it will affect the incentives and their ability to result in the behavior that you are wanting. That is why you'll have a bunch of hacks. You'll have a bunch of people that build things that possibly are externalities on other people. And, you know, the incentives are misaligned. You don't get the behavior that you want that leads to continual growth. Social scalability in Bitcoin is that if you give somebody a specific asset with very rock solid concrete properties, they are free to use that how they please. Anyway, so back to this tweet by Bob McElrath. So yeah, the non-native assets and non-native incentives are externalities. They add a bunch of vulnerabilities into the system that uh, you know, or you can be almost certain that they're insecure. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And I thought this was a very good tweet. Again, I linked to this in the show notes. And that's all for this episode. I'll come out with another one here shortly. My name is Anson Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Listener support podcast. Go to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. You can also sign up for my free newsletter. comes out every uh, Friday. That is bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash report. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs>